You know what? I'll tell you what. Let me just handle it from here, okay? Okay, you just take you the just, lead. You just sit there and be pretty, okay? Oh! <laughs> oh, well, at least you said I look pretty. Well, yeah. See, there you go. See, oh, that's why this word, that works so well. Uh-huh. All, All right, right you ready? go ahead. Greetings, savory inferiors, and welcome to Vampire Insider, the unofficial podcast dedicated to recapping and reacting to AMC's Immortal Universe, including Interview with the Vampire and the Mayfair Witches. With both shows in hiatus, our co-hosts Christina LaRusso, Joanne Palumbo, and myself, Mark Snedeker, are engaging in fun discussions of vampire lore, deeper dives into the themes of the shows, and bringing in some special guests with particular expertise and passion for the works of Anne Rice. Today, we're going to be revisiting episode one in Throes of Increasing Wonder. We're going to discuss the episode again with the benefit of hindsight and also focus on the theme of identity. All right, now I'd like to welcome my charming podcast hosts. Hello, Joanne Palumbo. Hello, Mark Snedeker. Uh, hello, Christina LaRusso. Hello, hello, everyone. Christina's really just here as decoration today. <laughs> I, I'm fine with that. Yeah. I, was, I was decoration last night on Gen X Temporaneous uh, recording. There you go. Just sat there and listened to you chat with the dude about comic books. That's right. This might be a lot of Mark talking to himself then. All right. Well, he has no problem with that. Well, and okay, Mark. Lead All us right. off. Tell so, us what we're going to be doing tonight. We're going to be, what we've decided to do as a team, now that we're, you know, in the, the hiatus, now with the benefit of hindsight, mm -hmm. we'd like to now do some deep dives on some of these episodes, focusing usually on a single theme. Episode one, of course, in throes of increasing wonder, we have decided to focus on the idea of identity. This is the episode that introduced the whole series. This is what grabbed us by the jugular. This is what had that amazing church scene at the end there. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I was rewatching it today, and uh, once the lamplighter got taken out, I knew that it was just on the on the horizon. So I was yep. really looking forward to it. <laughs> He's in my head. So basically, he was singing a cranberry song, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. And then, of course, you know, there's some glorious murder that happens after that. So um, how about we just talk a little bit, a uh, semi-hot take about how you think identity is important, mostly to this episode, but of course it's important to the series as a whole. Christina, why don't you go ahead? Actually, I, I rewatched a couple of times. I reread the pilot script that is available Good online. Good Lord, I, we don't require that level of preparation, but, but okay. <laughs> That's a lot. But <laughs> what struck me is that I guess I had a bias going, a confirmation bias going into it that it was going to be Louie, all Louie, all yeah. Lestat. That's the identity, really mostly Louie. But it grapples with identity on so many levels across multiple characters. And I, and of course, it's an initial episode, it's a pilot episode. So it's really yeah. going to be establishing character. But you can see where there are uh, layers of identity happening yeah. with multiple of the characters. So that was interesting. And I'm excited to dig into some of my thoughts on that. Joanne, what, tell me about identity. Like step one, who are you? <laughs> We've missed you horribly. I know. I'm, and that episode was so good. And I'm so upset. I missed an opportunity to discuss the diaries with you guys. Um, for me, 
before I get into identity, I'd just like to discuss the fact that the fire in the church um, was way more <laughs> believable than yeah. any fire I saw in any other show yeah. that I may have recently watched. And I want to point <laughs> out that nobody was choking on imaginary smoke within 19 seconds of the fire actually igniting. So that was really nice. It was refreshing. Um, you know, I mean, identity as a concept with this episode, I guess I kind of watched with that in mind. And for some reason, I got really pulled into Daniel's identity, mainly when he was discussing the class, the way he was describing the whole entire purpose of journalism really just brought me to the whole purpose of the show. And I didn't catch that the first time around. Obviously, his identity is wrapped up in being a journalist and what his role is in this show. And okay. isn't it great to kind of go back and now remember why you got sucked in and then find new reasons why you got sucked in and then find a lot of excuses to say the word suck? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had I had actually just, you know, rewatched four, five and six. Was it last week, I guess, for the Diaries episode? So I was already sucked back in and I was planning on rewatching it soon anyway. So when you guys had suggested that we do this, I'm like, okay, that works perfectly for me. Now you're the queen of the rewatch, right? I mean, not on a lot of shows, but specifically with Vampire Diaries. How many times have you watched that one? I'm on my 10th rewatch. <laughs> that's a good portion of your life that's been dedicated to that show, which, you know, you love the show. Why not? I was thinking as I was watching the show and thinking about identity, of course, is that really. Louis's identity is to fight against his identity, mm -hmm. right? He's struggling every second of every day with trying to present himself one way, thinking he may be another, maybe somebody else. And it's not just, you know, his issues with homosexuality, but of course, later it develops into his image as a monster versus, you know, a person. But he's also playing multiple roles every day. He's the tough gangster, you know, at the brothels, but he's the caregiver and provider for his family. He is caretaker for his brother. At the same time, he is threatening his life in the street. And again, of course, it's not all just about him, but it's so poignant to just watch his struggles with identity. So that's kind of going to be my focus moving forward. Let's feature a character and let's start talking about how we see that character grappling with identity. So let's start out with Daniel. He really comes up first in the episode. What kind of caught my eye, I guess, at the beginning of this was when Daniel first starts, you know, he says there's there's stories out there that need to be told. There's stuff out there that people need to know about, and that's the job. It's not complicated other than how it'll mess with your life. That was like just like a bit of, I don't know if it's identity, but it got me thinking about his identity and who he is and, and his role in all of this aside from the storyteller, right? Which is pretty obvious. We know his role is he's going to be the catalyst that helps us uncover more things about Rashid slash Armand than we already know. And the fact that he's, and you know, he's got the Parkinson's disease and everything. And when at the beginning, when he's in the, in the penthouse with Louis, and I remember talking about this in the first episode and it still struck me again, was when Louis says to Rashid, you know, go get chef and get our boy some food here. I think he's tired. And you know, he snaps at him and says, look, I'm not your boy. I'm I'm an old man with all the bells and whistles and triggers that go along with it. So I think right from the get-go, Louis had in his mind that Daniel was, the, was a person that he was going to still be able to run this interview over on. Daniel is not that person anymore. He's, he's an old man. And like he said, 
doesn't put up with bullshit. I just think it's been fun watching the exploration of Daniel and then learning about his wife and everything throughout the show and his experience with drugs and alcohol and, and all that stuff. And with his daughters and, you know, we do learn a lot about him slowly throughout the show. I also was struck by his identity as a journalist. Now that's very clear, right? He's, he's a Pulitzer prize winning journalist. He's written something like, I think, I think it's like seven books total. Mm -hmm. And he is very well respected in the field, or at least that's what you're led to believe. Well, and he's teaching too. And that, then I got to thinking about two things. He was that. He was this journalist. Yeah. And now he is doing an online seminar. Right. Oh, now, how the mighty have fallen? Is that what you're saying? Well, well, well maybe. because No, that's because of COVID, because he's got Parkinson's. That's what I thought. It could be because of COVID, but it also could be, I don't know, you know, who there could be other reasons. Maybe he's not really doing that great. I mean, maybe he's not doing great, right? Like he's, he's clearly estranged from his children, which we learn later on. Yeah. We're allowed to use, by the way, you can use hindsight in any of these discussions. Exactly. So we, as we learn later on, he's estranged from his children. But if you think about that, so he's isolated. Yes, he is doing this practicum thing, but he could still be doing research for a book. He could still be writing a book. He could be doing, you know, yes, it, it, it's not ideal to do interviews over Zoom or on right. the phone or whatever else, but he could be doing that in the time of. So the, you're saying he's moved into kind of journalism adjacent and he's not really doing it. anymore. And he's not doing it anymore. And I wonder how much that is weighing on him. Cause if his identity has for so many years been Pulitzer prize winning journalist, multiple novels published all that and he does say actually in episode one i ha i haven't or something i think it's in episode one where he says he hasn't talked to his his um editor in a number yeah. uh, in, a, in a long time yeah. and when i talked to him i told him yeah you know, i'm interviewing the most dangerous man in the world right and so i think that maybe maybe he's at a, a moment in his career where there's like, a, is it carrot top <laughs> <laughs> where there's a, a little bit of a lull in his career or a dip in his career. Yeah. You know, he's not where he used to be. So I was thinking about him and in, in those terms. And then also what does it mean? He gets on a plane and goes to do this interview. Cause maybe he misses the life, you know, why being a real journalist, what, what is it? Right. So I think Joanne, you're exactly right. When he, when he goes through that, the beginning of practicum when he says there are stories out there to be told mm -hmm. and and he steps into the role as as an audience so that's actually not daniel as a character isn't aware of it but he is he is the yeah. stand-in for the audience right so for me i think that there's some stuff going on because why would he agree to do this yeah. seriously think about that he knows that he's going to interview a vampire he knows that that's true and like louis said to him you know why did you get on a plane in the middle of a pandemic with a disease yeah. right and he couldn't answer him. And I'm wondering if it's because, look, I'm going to do this because there are, this is a story that this could take me back to whatever notoriety I might yeah. gain or whatever else. So that's my thoughts on, on like the early stage of Daniel there. So I was struck by how much he despises his, his earlier self, right? He is just, he has no mercy for young Daniel. And I just, it always strikes me because, of course, I have a lot of mercy for young Mark. I'm like, he was so great. He was fast and funny and great looking. A pro soccer player. Right. Yeah, exactly. With the, I was a pro soccer player in 
always accept I wasn't a pro soccer player. <laughs> <laughs> I was not paid a single plug nickel. Um, but, you know, so that he's just very unforgiving about who he was then. And he's not that kind to himself now either. I'm an old man. I'm dying. I'm going to be shitty. That's just who I am. But his identity now does seem to be he's kind of wrapped himself around the idea of tr being a true hardcore journalist, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that this is his redemption mm -hmm. because when he was young, he fucked it up. Yeah. And he even said that when he was yeah about the wrong questions, he didn't when he when he did push, he let him walk all over him. Yeah. There was too many inconsistencies and he called that out. So and, and to be fair, it's the story of a lifetime. So he wants another crack at it. He wants to go out and he's going to stake everything on himself as a journalist, right, as a reporter of truth. And that's what he has told himself he wants. He wants the truth because he knows that Louis lied before, right, and didn't give him the true story. And he knows he didn't do the good job that, a, you know, a true journalist should have because he was on drugs and he was young and inexperienced. So now he's invested everything his entire life because he's risking his life. He mentions that several times throughout the series that he knows he can be taken out at any moment. And he's risking it all on this one shot to redeem himself as a journalist. Now, I think as we go through the this series, not just this season, but moving on, he may have some thoughts about redeeming himself as a person. We'll see if that happens. But right now, he's investing everything in Daniel, the journalist. He has a couple of things that that struck me in practicum when he's talking about his work as a journalist, being a journalist. And one of the things that he says is honesty is not a tactic. Right. And I think that underlines for us, look, Again, your point, he's yeah. there to get the truth. He right. wants this, you know, he wants this, he Whether, wants this do-over. For good or ill. Right. He wants this do-over just as bad as Louis does. Now, yeah. for what reason? And that is always going to be the question to me. I think he initially goes because he thinks there's a story here that needs to yeah. be told. And some of the stuff, some of those stories are bad things. There's yeah. stories about bad things. Right. That's what I think he's doing. And also... He's this is in the, his maybe his last chance to do something that's really big. And he he's probably he's fatalistic. I'm going to die yeah. anyway. I couldn't really write about vampires in my memoir. Yeah. No, he wouldn't have been taken seriously if he did. And just right. clarify something for me now in the of course, in the books, he publishes interview with the vampire. Mm -hmm. Did he publish it mm -hmm. in this universe? He no, didn't, right? No. He just sat on the story mm -hmm. because first of all, he did a shit job. Right. And opinion. he didn't have the tapes. Yeah. Louis had the tapes. Yeah. Seven tapes, by the way. Yeah. Seven tapes. And I'm wondering, they were hour-long tapes. I paused it this time. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so it's an hour. Two-sided? Two-sided. Okay. So, so wow. I think it's, yeah. So I think. Memorex Gold? <laughs> I can't remember what it is. <laughs> Maxell. <but> <laughs> I mean, Maxell. Yeah. <laughs> so seven tapes, 14 hours, right? Did he have a tape labeled uh, Danny Summer 85 Mix? No, he did okay. not. No. Because he might. Was, it was 73. Yeah. Uh, he couldn't include it in his memoir. Right. Because he wouldn't have been taken seriously, as Joe said. Yeah. I mean, I and would, now, you know, to be fair, if you're reading someone's memoir and all of a sudden they start talking about vampires, you might question their sanity and veracity. Absolutely. We know that he has those things going, but what is Louis's purpose? And I think we have to go back, and this is a little bit of an aside from Daniel's in, um, How dare you? identity, but I think it goes back to 
what Louis says when they're eating dinner together. And we'll, and we'll get there. We'll talk yeah. about that maybe when we talk okay. about Louis. I also want to talk about the puzzle that he's doing. Sure. Sort of how he's living his life and what he's doing. He's doing this puzzle. And that, remember when we looked into that in episode one and it was fall of the rebel angels. Yes. This is when Satan decides to rebel against God. So my question would be, is Daniel one of the rebel angels? Does he see himself that way? Would he see himself that way? I think he would because he described when he said to the editor, I'm going to go interview one of the most dangerous men in the world. I mean, that's pretty rebellious when the two op, well, I don't know about, you know, it'd be scary to interview Bezos, Bezos, but Putin was the other guest that the editor had, you know, and I think he was trying to make himself sound like a, you know, a badass or something. So we're doing religious imagery, right? Mm Mm-hmm. What caused the fall, the original fall from grace for humanity? With the fall of man? Yeah. Why did we get kicked out of heaven? Because we ate from the tree of knowledge. That's right. There's your rebel angel right there. He's like, and that's a lot of the kind of mythos around Lucifer. The legends the, of as, the fall. That's right. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> as the light bringer, really all he did was give humans knowledge that was forbidden. And of course, that's a kind of a, also a similarity to Prometheus, right? Mm -hmm. That you are now cast out because you brought knowledge. So maybe that is how Daniel sees himself, right? He's like, I I feel compelled to bring this knowledge, but in doing so, I know that, you know, I may end up being cast out. I may end up being damned for doing it. Yeah. Interesting. Well, especially as a former drug addict, right? You would think that even if he did it when he was clean and sober, people would automatically think he was back on drugs because no one's just going to believe this. Right. Except me. Well, he's going to have to show proof. And what was interesting about rewatching this, and I was, I was really digging into the, just the minor details, the nuances of the dialogue. And he's just going through this process. Like, Okay, and here's how it's going to go. I'm going to need, right. you know, you, one we're going to one on one, and and then I'm going to have what I can't confirm. I will have my fact checkers on, and of course, Rashid. I was going to say, who got up. alarmed? Yeah, <laughs> Rashid comes. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is not what you agreed to. Yes, he's like, oh, is that right, Rashid? Hey, why don't, you, why don't we do, take a selfie? <laughs> pop, pop. <laughs> and and so this is for real. Yeah, he's going to publish this, and this yeah. is going to make. Because I, I, I really stopped. I looked at Practicum. I went to the webpage for Practicum, right. and I watched the trailer that they why, have there. Why do you do this just to make us look bad? No, I no. Joanne's looked at all of that stuff. When you look at that, it shows like a list of the books that he's written. And I just, I looked at it and I thought, here's a guy that's like super accomplished. He's not just, you know, he hasn't written a right. couple of articles. Right. He's written serious journalistic, you know, right. investigative journalism you know, book length pieces and he's there. He's going to do this. This is going to be real for him. And this is going to make his name on his way out. I was going to say, because he's got all that stuff, but what is his inner Holden Caulfield telling him? You're a phony. You're a phony. I think so. And I think that him having to do that practicum thing might be a step down in his mind for him. Right. Right. It's a sensible thing to do. Joanne, you're a hundred percent correct. What else could he do in the the living man? What's he going to do? Right, right. Uber eats. Yeah. You know. So, so, but you're right. It's a perfectly practical thing to do. But this is Daniel. Is he a practical guy? I don't, I don't think so. 
he has a practical streak. He's cynical. He's extremely he's cynical. He's got a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. He is cynical. He, he is makes angry. David Hume look like Peter Pan, right? <laughs> I mean, he's just super, super cynical. But he's got a practical streak, too. He's like, I want $10 million. Yeah. I want to put it in trust for my kids. Yeah. Right? Because I might as well leave them something, mm-hmm. you know? So he does have that practical streak because a cynic, a cynic will think of practical things, right? They're like, you know, idealism, fine, whatever. But guess what? I got to pay the bills, mm-hmm. right? And that's what we're really all here to do is pay yeah. the bills. So, you know, um, I think that that's, I think that's a good observation that his cynicism makes him think about practical things like this. And this is kind of who he is. I mean, you could tell when he was, you know, preaching to the, uh, to his, his, his class there where he's, giving them the ideals of journalism, but Mm -hmm. also saying this is fucking real and this is going to suck and you're not going to make any money, Mm -hmm. you know, and just being real with them. Although is truth just a strategy for him? Cause he's not, truth is not a tactic. It's right. But he says that, but is, isn't he kind of just giving them some truth, right. As a tactic to get them to, you know, buy into his program here because he's certainly not telling them that he's knows that vampires exist. He's not telling them, oh, by the way, probably gay, and I had an affair with you know a vampire for a couple of decades, maybe, maybe, maybe right? So, I mean, I you know maybe he's also using truth as a tactic. I know that there's a line of thought that perhaps the devil's minion thing happened, or that there was some uh, some period of time that he and Armand were in, in a relationship, and that may be what that may yeah. bear out. But if you look at his body of work he starts off writing you know fairly early on i guess he could have for some years there in the 70s had a lost not weekend but you know long stretch of of years but i don't know he has a pretty consistent body of work once he gets going and he's i don't know maybe maybe he maybe he does hard to say Let's do a small one. I don't think that we'll be able to speak a long time about this, but let's talk a little bit about Paul. All right. Did either of you notice any identity kind of things with Paul? Mark, why don't you go first? Well, I know that he is cognizant of identity, right? Because he has that exchange with his soon-to-be brother-in-law where he's very hyped up about the fact that this guy is referring to his mother as Maman, Mm -hmm. right? And he's like, you're not married yet. You're not allowed to do that. And she'll never be your scientific mother. <laughs> right. But just like defending, basically gatekeeping that identity from this new guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And then he's also very concerned with the identity of Louis as both a criminal and oddly pronounced homosexual. <laughs> like, why does he say it like that? I don't know. <laughs> he's like, you know, there's a problem for being a homosexual. I'm like, just like, Bacon? What does that even mean? <laughs> I noticed so many words pronounced was so strangely this this yeah. go around watching it. It was funny. Yeah. But I mean, so he's very consumed with Louis's identity, right? Is he concerned with his own? Um Do is he grappling? Because yeah. what we are well, I think what we see with most people in most of the characters is that they're grappling in some yeah. way with their identity. Yeah. So I guess so. He, I mean, he he feels like he's got to be this vessel. For the Lord's truth, right? Mm-hmm. But clearly, at, at a certain point, I don't, well, clearly, but seemingly, 
at a certain point that drives him to step off the roof, you know, and he, but he, you know, he's listening to these voices and he, you know, he feels like he has to be a conduit for these voices, even though, you know, it disturbs other people and it hurts his standing in the community, et cetera. But he feels like he needs to be this person. And he's very wrapped up in his Catholic religious identity. Did you notice like he made that snide comment about his future brother-in-law who's not a Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. And he's he's very invested in that identity as a Catholic person. Mm-hmm. That's the home team for him, right? Yeah. So So at the dinner, I kind of noticed this go around a little bit more. I really think Louis was – or not Louis. I'm sorry. Lestat was in – Paul's head the entire time when Paul asks, what are your intentions with my brother? What are your, you know, what is your relationship with my brother? I think that was Lestat making him ask that. I think Lestat wants Louis out. And that was his, his way of, you know, trying to get that conversation started in front of the family. It was obvious when he was telling the story about being at the, um, was it a monastery or something that he studied at Lestat? And Louis like gets all pissed and he's like, don't do that. Don't do that to my family. Don't do that in my house. He had Paul in a trance. Mm -hmm. You could tell. And he was doing that thing that he did at the card game where he's talking, but sending messages over to Paul. And that's when I think he got in his head to tell him to kill himself. And I think that a lot of that view of maybe where you're getting marked that he's wrapped up in Louis in Louis's identity in terms at least of his sexuality, was fed to him by Lestat. I I don't think maybe he had a reason to question it prior to that. I think he questioned his integrity and his business tactics and his morality around the business because he did earlier that day at breakfast, right? Yeah. But I think the sexuality part of it comes from Lestat. And remember when we originally talked about this episode, you know, we had long discussions about was Lestat in his head at the time he walked off the roof? I'm more convinced of it now than ever. I am less convinced of it now than ever. Really? Yeah, I'm less. You know why? You're both wrong. You know what time of day it was when he walked off the roof? Sunrise. No, no. I don't mean he was in his head at that particular moment, but he put the the idea in his head. He told him to do it. I would not doubt that at all because he comes around and says, he's been in my head. Yeah, he does. He says at... Towards the end, yeah. he says he's he's, he's told me. he's the devil. Yeah, well, and he's told me. And then Louis says, "You well, you think everyone is the devil?" And he said, "No, but he he, he really is. I, he told me he's here to get souls." Right. And he was in my head. He told me. Yeah. And yeah. Louis probably thought, "Ah," eh. but that also helps to make sense of why Louis, when they question Lestat later uh, in the Inquisition, yes. <laughs> And Louis asks him outright, did you make Paul kill himself? And he says, no, of, I, course, I, of not. course not. I didn't. But, okay, I love that you all picked up on this because I did too. And I thought, oh, am I like reading way too much <laughs> into it? But I'm not. I'm not. Okay. I First of all, there's he's extremely interested in other people's identities. Yeah, and that either many means, religious people, zealots are. And either that means he has absolutely no sense of self-awareness. Or he totally understands who he is, and he's just looking at everybody going, you Judge. don't know who you yeah. are. You don't know who you are. I'm going to tell you who you are. And he's in that in a very judgy place, which, yeah. you know, it's not super. Religious, religious zealots you tend would, to be that. All right. But the other thing is, 
I think that he is very comfortable with who he is. I don't think that he yeah. thinks that there's anything wrong that he's hearing these these little the birds, the birds yeah. as he says. I don't think that he sees anything wrong with that. I think that he he thinks society is probably wrong for judging him. He yeah. recognizes, of course, that they will. That they will. But I don't think he cares that. Yeah. You know, he he would say you're wrong. I'm right. Right. He's closer to the Paul from the book than I ever even realized because I I, I just I wasn't I was so enraptured by, by everybody show. else yeah. and the show and the newness that I wasn't paying that close of attention. And I think that he is um, I think I think he's closer to that, Paul. One of the things that I caught was when Lestat is talking about being in the monastery. And he says, I wanted to be a priest like you, Paul. Yeah. So Lestat knows something about Paul that maybe right. nobody else there did, which is he wants to be a Catholic priest. Right. But. Or wanted to at least. a little bit too crazy. But for, he, to it, right. There, yeah. there, I mean, and. And black. And also that may have at the time, and I meant to, I didn't have a chance to look what the year the first ordained black yeah. priest was. But that could also have been a stumbling block. Uh, regrettably, I don't know the history of that. Let's well assume that, I would assume that it yeah, would be. Let's assume that the archdiocese of New Orleans was not especially enlightened in the early 20th century. No, correct, correct. Yeah. I mean, I, definitely his he has an understanding of who he is from a religious perspective. He's full on with it. He really understands that. Perhaps he is not self actualized. He isn't. You know, he sort of hasn't done everything that he would have liked to have done to his best capacity, right? Which would have then potentially, according to Lestat, wanted to, wanting to have been a priest. And again, right, even before he uh, takes his own life, I see that he was, at, even till the very end, coaching Louis, you should get married. You need to marry Hazel. She's the one you were dancing too close with. You need, you know, he's directing what he sees other people's identities should be based on, you know, his worldview. But I don't know. I think that he has a pretty good idea. And he may be one of the only characters in the, you know, that are prominent characters that that do know who they are right here and right, right now. And stepped off a roof. We know that Lestat was in his head, whether or not, whether or not Lestat was telling him to do it. Or was or knew this, and this is what I said in he episode definitely one. Knew he was. He had to have known he was because he says to Louis he was longing Long. for those flagstones. Right. Here's a question to ask about Paul that we don't think we've considered before. What were his last words? Now, I will answer that question. I had too much checker cake. Or I ate too much checker cake. Those were his actual last words. Actual last words. Fell off the building. Why do you think that was? That's an odd choice, right? It's not. Well, right before that, though, he said he, he said, loved I love it. you, brother. Mm -hmm. He's like, I love you too, baby brother. And he's like, he's starting to wander. He's like, I ate too much checker cake. And then, you know, Louis starts screaming and he just. Psh. I, I I don't know. What are your thoughts? I, I mean, because he says that when he starts climbing to get up onto the roof. Yes, he does. To me, that strikes me as him less than of Lestat being in his head and more of him just kind of being befuddled. You know, that kind of talking to himself, kind of stream of consciousness, befuddlement. 
So it was just kind of the con- confused muttering of someone who's kind of who's lost on- a little bit of touch with reality. Yeah, a little bit on the edge. He doesn't recognize the severity of what he's maybe even about to really do, that there's no real... He's not really motivated. It's not like he's saying, what was me? You know, there's no, it's just sort of like, well, I had too much Tucker cake. And I guess the only cure for that is cement poisoning. No, no. Paul strikes me as a bit into self-flagellation, asceticism, deprivation, and really is not concerned with as much with the material world as he is with the spiritual. I think it's pot. And now look, I'm pretty far out on a limb here. Yeah, and certainly that. that's the case with Paul in the book. Yeah. I would say that what role did the checker cake perform in the story? Well, it was a symbol of him reconnecting with his family, celebrating, indulging, if you will. The weight of that indulgence made it hard for him to climb up the roof. And maybe what he's saying is the weight of you know, the world and the temptations of this world are too much and I gots to go. That's an interesting read on it. Yeah, I don't know whether that's true or not. I just started thinking about it about five minutes ago. I wonder if at that point he kind of also realizes that there's no place for him here. But how does the checker cake represent that to you? Just how disjointed the meanderings of his mind. Just dis- yeah, yeah, just the meanderings of his mind. And I think that he recognizes that this is not a world that is going to listen to what he has to say. Paul from the book was closer to a world that might listen to what he had to say sure. because it was further that back, for that further further back in time, you know, sort of temporally mm-hmm. still adjacent to a religious world. Yeah. Very adjacent because this is really just on the kind of on the cusp of the scientific revolution within a hundred years. The Paul in the book, right? The Paul in the TV series is much farther away. So maybe that just increases his displacement from modern society and his family, et cetera. Yeah, I think so. And he, he is aesthetic in the book. Remember in the book, he is living in the, little chapel that they have built for Mm -hmm. him and not eating and all the rest. I think that that's fair to say definitely about him in the, in the book about his asceticism. You could be correct also in the series, but I think more the, it's just the wanderings of his mind. Like you could very well be, I mean, that's not as a daring a theory as mine perhaps. I mean, live a little, (laughs) I don't know. Joni, what do you think about it? Well, guess what, Mark? <laughs> what? This is Where, a, where'd she go? <laughs> this is actually a good way to close out this episode. I thought it might be. We are going to admit now that this most recent question about Paul's last words were recorded many days <laughs> after the rest, <laughs> after of the, the rest of the podcast was recorded, and we lost Joanne on that podcast. Her computer. Well, look. Okay, we lost her computer. We she lost computer. She didn't perish from the earth. Mm-mm, no. Right. Her computer broke. In the middle of recording. Shit the bed. And so we have, finally, we're going to be releasing this episode when you're listening to it. And we have got to record more parts to this episode. Yes. So this is part one of our re-review of episode one. Of episode one. And so we've only gotten through Daniel and Paul, and we still have lots more. There's a couple other characters left, aren't there? Claudia... Uh, Lestat and Louis to do at yeah. the very least, and about then the lamplighter. perhaps well maybe not him. I don't know. He <laughs> he, he seemed pretty comfortable in his identity well, as a lamplighter. Yeah. 
right well, up until the right, end. Yeah, his story arc was falling from a ladder. <laughs> well, Antoinette, we might be able to do Antoinette because she does have kind of an identity crisis. We will be back next week with a second installment in this and hopefully, we're hopeful that Joanne is going to have a repaired means of communicating with us. We'll try and figure that out. If we can't have her back because of that, Mark and I will carry on. In the meantime, we also have some other exciting episodes coming up. We're going to intersperse along with these deep dives by theme into the episodes. We're going to be doing some special guests. We're going to have Erica back on. She's going to be appearing with that creative spoonie. We've talked about this before. Erica has gone rogue on us, and we're super excited about it because she came up with an even better idea than what we <laughs> thought we were going to do. So we'll be coming back with some, some of those episodes mixed in as well. And we just want to invite you to come and follow us on Twitter. You can find us at vampire underscore insider. I am at Christina Gen X. Mark is at Mark Eats Peach. Joanne is taking a little hiatus from Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook, Reddit. Just yes. search for Vampire Insider. Sounds like a great plan. All right. Well, Mark, I'm just going to say bye. Peace out, Cub Scouts.